city of the living God. All right, we're continuing uh, in our series through the book of Hebrews. And maybe at first reading, it wasn't quite as obvious what the the main point would be today, and especially as we look at this passage at first glance. But um, I think this word is so important, you guys. This word about where we have arrived in our Christian race, journey, running, whatever you want to describe it as, what metaphor you want to use, and it really gives us the why we are still running, all right? And so if you guys could really focus in on the word today, and if you could hang in there with me, I hope to uh, bring out that main point. Now, I think I've shared this before, but believe it or not, I, when I was a lot younger, all right, a lot, lot younger, uh, I used to run cross country, and this was just a couple of years, and really I couldn't have picked the worst sport for someone like me. Uh, cross run- country requires you to run long distances. And it requires you to do that not on a flat track, but usually a course that had different types of surfaces and, and you know, some hills and downhills and flat ground. And, and so you can already imagine how uh, terrible of a cross-country runner I was. Uh, the only thing I had going for me was that somehow I would finish the race. And that was something that I really prided myself in was that I never gave up. And usually that meant I, I beat only a couple of people uh, but, however, I did finish. But for someone like me, uh, miscast as a cross-country runner for those couple of years, um, the thing I always found myself asking was, why am I doing this? Right? Like, why, why do I want to finish so badly? It's not like I was winning any medals. It wasn't like I was winning a lot of points for my team. You know, it was, it was, really, it was really confusing to me at times. Uh, not at times, uh, every single time I ran or practiced, it was confusing to me. And so we, we get to this passage, and, and I think, um, you know, at the beginning of Hebrews 12, right, verses 1 and 2, the author of Hebrews brings up the metaphor of running this race of endurance, right? And he gives us that sort of the basics of this race of endurance. He tells us that we have to cast off all the hindrances, the sins that we're clinging on to. He tells us that it's going to require endurance. And right away in verses 3 to 11, he's going to tell, explain why it requires endurance and how we can endure. And he's going to make it plain from the very beginning. And then verse, uh, verses uh, 12 to 17, he's going to give us some warnings, things that cause us to get stuck in this race of endurance. And it's going to even deal with our relationships with others and how we can have peace with others. But you know, I feel like it's not an unfair thing to say that this metaphor is kind of ongoing in Hebrews 12, and maybe even up to this passage we get to right now, and really, he's going to talk about where we have not arrived in the first three verses, and in the next three verses, he's going to say where we have arrived, right? So where we have not arrived and where we have arrived, and the reason why he's going to talk about those two differences is because he's going to talk about the motivation, I think, right? For us to continue running this race of endurance. The why. Well, right away in verse 18, even though the author doesn't specifically tell us that we've arrived at or have not arrived at Mount Sinai, from the context, from the words he uses, from the, the description he uses, it's pretty clear. And I'm going to try to break that down real quick. 
Look at with me in verse 18. He says, you, have, you haven't come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness, a gloom, tempest. He talks about the sound of the trumpet in verse 19. He talks about the voice whose words made the, the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. In verse 20, he talks about this endurance, right? How could they, uh, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. All right, so we're given huge hints as to what the author of Hebrews is referring to. And just real quickly, if we turn to Exodus chapter 19, and I'm going to just lead us through a, a, a quick few verses, starting in verse 10. I think as we read it, it'll pretty much give it away to you guys what the author of Hebrews was talking about, right? He said, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. So you should see very clear references from the passage we read today in Hebrews to the story here in Exodus 19 of God's people originally approaching Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. All right? So this was when Moses went back up and all in the midst of the, the thunder, the clouds, the smoke, the fire, the, the mountain trembling, he went up to receive the Ten Commandments. Interesting, right, to see this description. And I don't know how many of you have spent some time thinking about that original Mount Sinai situation when Moses received the Ten Commandments. But we're reminded of this specific time, even in today's passage, Hebrews 12. You know, if you think about this, it's amazing right from the beginning that the people of, of God had to prepare even just to come into the presence of this mountain. For a few days, they were required to to work on this process of being ceremonially clean. They had to wash their garments. They had to abstain from sex. They had to do things so that they would just even have the right or the privilege of coming into the presence of the mountain. They weren't even allowed to set foot on the mountain, let alone touch the base of the mountain. It's pretty ridiculous to think that if even a beast, a wild animal, was just hopping around and touched the foot of the mountain, it would die. That this mountain, by God simply descending upon Mount Sinai and putting his presence on that mountain, would make that mountain so holy that anyone who is undeserving or not given the right to touch the mountain would face the instant 
punishment of death. So as you could imagine, the response of the people as described in Exodus 19 was one of fear. They saw the fire, this blazing fire. They saw the darkness. They saw the gloom. They saw the lightning. They heard the thunder. And right away, what did they see? They saw the presence of God. This blazing fire, this destructive, almost menacing power was on full display. And on top of that fire, at the same time, there was smoke. And at the same time, there was darkness. So that B.F. Westcott, I don't have the quote for you up there. He describes it in this way. It's real easy. He says, it becomes a manifestation of terrible majesty. A manifestation of terrible majesty. A symbol of the divine presence. See, God had come down on that mountain as the holy judge. As the holy judge, he was unapproachable that day. And he did this in order to teach his people about the proper fear and respect of God and of the laws he was about to pass down. It was important for him to make his presence known in such a way because he was about to hand down his principles, his laws, the rules that would govern being a part of his kingdom. And those laws were important for the Israelites to keep because by keeping those laws, not only would you become more like the holy God that is presenting those laws, but it would also be the laws that would set you apart as a nation in that time and place. And, and so the, the, the commandments went out with a reward. Do this and you shall live. Fail and you should die. And for such a law to go out and such a covenant to go out and for Moses himself to be the mediator of that covenant, even he himself trembled. I can't imagine what it would be like for him to take that first step onto Mount Sinai that morning. In the midst of all of this. But there was a huge problem with what happened at Mount Sinai for God's people. And I think R. Kent Hughes puts it greatly with this simple quote. He says, and this one I do have for you guys. He says, the great problem with the trip to Sinai was that while men and women could see God's holiness and their sinfulness, the law provided no power to overcome sin. So as God's people approached Mount Sinai and they saw what was happening on that mountain, and later when Moses would come down with the Ten Commandments, it was clear how awesome and powerful the king was and how he had the right to give these laws and the power to enforce it, the importance of all of these things. Not only, the, that, did, they, not only did they see the majesty and the holiness of God, they also saw their own sinfulness, how far they were from God's rules and laws and requirements they didn't see a true solution. Because the more they tried to keep the law, the more they realized they could not do it. They were sinners, just like you and I. And so the author doesn't end there. That's why he says that's not where we arrived. In our journey, in our race of endurance, this is not where we have come. We have not come to this place. Instead, he says, starting in verse 22, this is where we have come. All right? But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. All right, we'll stop right there because I, I kind of want to break down a little bit for us everything that 
the author of Hebrews is going to tell us about where we've come to. Zion was the mountain where King David originally conquered, and he set up this mountain as, in a way, his religious center for his kingdom. How did he do that? He brought the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, to that mountain, Mount Zion. And the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God always symbolized God's presence with his people. This was a symbol of his very real presence. God would dwell among his people. And so then over time, Zion kind of became synonymous with Jerusalem, became synonymous with this idea of God's dwelling place. And so the reminder is, look, where we have come to is, yes, God's dwelling place. But this is his city, the city of the living God. And in a way, he's reminding us that we are citizens of this place, the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay? And he's going to describe to us right away a difference between this city, this mount, versus Mount Sinai. And he's going to tell us in verse 22 that the first thing we see is this festal gathering. All right? It's a festal gathering, and there's these innumerable angels at this gathering. Now, the word there in the original language that uh, uh, the author uses to describe, you know, whatever this is, and, and, and the ESV translates it as a, a festal gathering. That word in, in non-biblical sources was used to describe either a, a great national assembly that would take place kind of like yearly amongst the Greeks, or even these annual athletic competitions, for example, the Olympics. That was the exact word that non-biblical sources would use to describe these, these kinds of gatherings. But one thing that all of these gatherings had in common were these were gatherings of celebration and gatherings of joy, even in the, in the midst of competition. And so right away, we see a huge difference between Mount Zion and Mount Sinai. The response and the, the, the emotions was trembling and fear at Mount Sinai. Here, we're brought into this feast, this celebration, this amazing gathering that even this great, huge multitude of angels are a part of. We're also told right away that in verse 23, that also we have come to this assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. All right, assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. Well, if we think about this, Jesus was the firstborn par excellence, right? He's the, 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 the firstborn of God. He's the only uh, begotten son of God. He is the ultimate firstborn. But in Jesus, what do we receive? The inheritance that was due to the firstborn, right? So, you know, firstborn back then carried a lot of weight. I don't know how much weight being the first child in, in, in your families carries today. I think it's, it's, I mean, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it could be a lot. It could be a little. For some of you, you, you may have, if you were the first child, you may have grew up with a lot of pressure or expectations, or you may have not. Maybe your family raised you guys in a way where everyone was treated equally, or maybe it wasn't. I don't know. And maybe as parents, I don't know, you know? We always talk about how the firstborn we raise with such care, and then the secondborn we like practically let the wild raise them, right? It's like, you know, we let them eat dirt and whatever and things like that. Firstborn, if anything drops on the floor, we're like washing it underwater before we give it back to our children. Look, back then the firstborn would receive the inheritance. And if the parents decided to give 
part of the inheritance to their second or thirdborn, the firstborn would usually receive at least double the portion that the others would receive, at least twice as much. It was considered a right, and you didn't get that right because of your achievements, because you were smarter, more capable, better. You simply received it because of your status in terms of order of birth. The firstborn was also a, a term that would describe children who were loved by the father. You would receive the love, you would receive the inheritance, you would receive the care and the protection of the father. And so here, this great reminder, all right, to those who are running this race of endurance, that you have arrived at this somewhat, well not somewhat, to a pretty exclusive membership club. You can only come to this table, to this gathering, if you're considered firstborn, right? And you're enrolled in heaven now. It's a status we receive freely, not by our achievements, but through our faith in Jesus Christ. And so we're reminded that we are part of this feast, this celebration, this gathering, who are the members that will be joining in with the angels, the firstborn. That's us. And what city could be described the city of the living God unless God himself was not present? And once again, we see this. Just like at Mount Sinai, the judge was there. But in the city of Zion, the judge plays a different role than he did in Mount Zion. And I'm going to explain that. You know, I once had to help someone very close to me, and I, I don't want to give details because it's, yeah, you know, it's, the sh long story short, we had to go to court. Uh, the two people I, were, I was helping had come under some charges, and they needed to go to court that day and make a plea. They had to either plead guilty, no contest, or, or innocent. And I still remember the two people I was helping, they're the most confident people in the world that I know. But that morning when I went with them, they were shaken. They couldn't speak. They were nervous. They were stuttering before the judge. They didn't know how to respond. They had already sought legal counsel, and the legal, legal counsel had, had, had told them to enter a plea of no contest and then try to make a deal with the district attorney. And it was nerve-wracking for them. This was the first time ever in their lives coming into a courthouse ever for something like this. And I still remember the fear I had because of the way they were responding to this. And again, long story short, the last time we went into that court together had been after all of this had been cleared out. They had sat together, talked with the, the district attorney. Charges were basically going to be dropped. But we had to go one more time to the courthouse. And this time, this morning, they would come a second time before the judge, but knowing, knowing that they were innocent, that there would be no charges that day, that they would have to serve no time, no pay no penalty, et cetera, et cetera. There was a very different right, approach. The people who were coming to Mount Sinai were full of fear and trembling because they were coming before the judge who was about to give them the law. They had to keep that law in order to be declared innocent. In the city of the living God, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
Look at that last part of verse 23, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The people, the assembly, those gathered there were already people declared righteous. They weren't coming before the judge because they didn't know whether they would be accepted or not, whether they would be declared innocent or guilty, whether they would be condemned or given the reward of eternal life. They knew why they were there because the judge had declared them to be righteous because of the blood of Christ. And so it was very different. God was now their vindicator. He was the judge, yes, who gave the law, but who also gave the life to be free. And so the presence of the judge, even in this situation, it was a cause and reason to celebrate. In verse 24, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now think about that for a second. Abel. And if you remember with me the story of two brothers, Cain and Abel, and how the older brother, who should have protected, who should have helped, who should have cared for his younger, instead does what? Murders. The younger brother, Abel. And so if you think about that story, then the blood of Abel was a story of unjustness. And so the blood of Abel then cries out. It cries out for justice to be done, for his story to be heard, so that someone would come and take up his cause even after his untimely death. The blood of Jesus, in a way, shares some similarities. It was also so, so unjust. He was innocent, not guilty and yet murdered upon the cross. But his blood is different from the blood of Abel because his blood cries out the story of what? Grace, mercy, forgiveness, acceptance. His blood is the way that we were forgiven. His blood was the price that he willingly paid so that we would not have to spill our blood in the same way. And so Jesus becomes the mediator of a new covenant. And so you see the story, the description for this chapter 12 is not of a physical mountain that we are approaching. It's not a physical place comparing Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. It's a comparison of the old covenant and the new covenant. The covenant which required obedience to a law or the result of death versus the covenant that requires Jesus to be obedient to the point of death. My brothers and sisters, I think the issue we sometimes face today is that we don't, we don't really you know, understand Mount Sinai and you know, we don't have this history that maybe if we were Jewish we would have and all of those things involved, right? Like it was almost to the, to the Hebrews, at the, to, the, to the hearers of this word back then, you, know, you could imagine a Jewish person trying to leave, uh, leave his whole culture and faith behind, right? And what it would be like for him to all of a sudden say, no, that's not my destiny. I'm going to follow this destiny here and run this race here. I'm going to run too. And I've already arrived at Mount Zion and all of that that was involved for a Jewish person back then. And, you know, it's, it's almost like we could imagine them trying to run this race and hecklers along the way saying, you're running the wrong way. You've forgotten who you are. 
You've forgotten where you've come from. You're abandoning all of these things for a lie. Turn around right away. Go back to Mount Sinai. Go back to the law. This is what Moses received for us, the good law of God. Go back to that. Don't turn away. Don't quit. Don't run the wrong race. For us, that's hard to relate to. But I think what we do is we can kind of create our own Mount Sinai. And the way we do that is we do this. We reduce, all right, get this clear. We, 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 we many times reduce Christianity, all right? We reduce Christianity to a list of do's and do nots. We like to reduce it to a list of what I should be doing, what I must be doing, what I ought to be doing, versus what I must not be doing, what I should never do, or if I've do, done it, what I should quit. And, and don't get me wrong, of course, this is still a part of Christianity, but the, the key word was reducing it to this. When we reduce Christianity and when we reduce the gospel to a list of do's and do nots, the problem we face is that we will constantly ask ourselves the questions, such, uh, questions such as, are we doing enough? Am I doing enough? Is my worship good enough? Is my heart pure enough? Are my actions enough? Is my obedience enough? Is my tithing enough? Is my prayer enough? Is my reading the Bible enough? And alongside of those questions, we'll also ask the questions, are my sins too much? Are my sins too grave? Have I become unworthy? Have I made myself unclean? I don't deserve to serve. I don't deserve to come to worship. I don't deserve God's grace. And when we reduce Christianity to that, even when we come before him, we come unwillingly. We don't want to be here. We come with fear. We come with trembling. We wonder what God will judge us for now. What faults God will remind us of. That's how I used to do church when I was younger. And I hated it. I would live my life Sunday night to sort about Friday night. And it would be so full of sin. Friday night at church, I would be reminded, there's God. There's church. There's the Bible. There's things I have to repent of before I show up. That Sunday. And so the, the worst words someone could say to me were words like, man, how dare you do that on a Sunday? That's, you're so crazy, man. How can, you, how can you do that on a Sunday? And then Sunday night, I would fall back into the same pattern. And so every time I approached God, it was with fear and trembling. Look, the author of Hebrews, Paul, me, the writers of the New, in the New Testament, none of us are saying that it doesn't matter whether we obey or not. That, that would be a lie. Paul himself, the greatest proponent of grace, also says we're slaves to righteousness. Obedience is not even a question. Of course God desires for us to be obedient. But, but, we have to figure out how to approach him, not with fear and trembling now, but in the light of Christ, to approach him with joy, with confidence, with boldness. Amen? 
We are reminded that we're not coming to this place of lightning and smoke and terror and darkness where there's a voice that comes out and we're so terrified. We're like, I don't want to hear it anymore. The more I hear it, 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 it drives me away. We come to the festal gathering, to the feast, to the celebration. We are already made part of this gathering of the firstborn. We are already enrolled in heaven. We come before the judge, but he's not here to tell us whether we're innocent or not. We've already been declared innocent. We've already been declared righteous by the blood of the mediator of the new covenant. A better word, a better story, a better covenant. Life and hope and joy and confidence is found in the city of our living God. And this is where we have arrived. Amen? One of the key words for me as I looked at this passage is in verse 22. The author of Hebrews says, you have come to Mount Zion. Not you are going to Mount Zion. Not that you're running to Mount Zion. Or not that it's some future place, some reality that we're, we're somehow racing to and that's why we have to endure. But we have already come here. That tense, the perfect tense in the Greek it talks about a past event that has already occurred. But the emphasis is not on the past event. In the perfect tense, in Koine Greek, the emphasis is on the present situation, the present reality, as well as the ongoing situation that arises because of that past event. And the author of Hebrews deliberately chooses this tense, I believe, for a very important reason, because his whole point is not that we are only arriving and have that to look forward to, but since we have already arrived, there is a present reality for us and an ongoing, continuing reality. We are citizens of the city of the living God. Amen? My final word today is one of encouragement then. Let's not give up running this race of endurance. Let's run it well. And to run it well, we have to remind ourselves where we're going and where we already have arrived. Citizens of the city of this living God. Because of Christ's grace and mercy, we are allowed to approach him with confidence. With the same lips we used to curse others, we are now allowed to praise and honor God and bless his holy name. With the same hands that we commit sins, we are now allowed to serve the kingdom. We're allowed to serve his people. We're allowed to serve others and neighbors, even those who might be considered the enemies of God. This is the life we're called to. Let's run it well. Let's not get caught up in a place of fear and trembling and reluctance. Maybe, maybe, for some of us, that was where we were stuck. Mount Sinai. The laws, the rules, the mighty judge. I just want to encourage you today, all right? The power and effect of Christ's blood will never fail you. You are now the firstborn. You will receive all the benefits of being declared the firstborn. You will get all the benefits of being a citizen in that city forever and ever because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So keep running. Keep running. And when you come to church, don't come reluctantly. Don't sing reluctantly. Don't come with fear and trembling. 
Come with joy and boldness. Encourage our worship team with your joy and boldness rather than reluctance. Amen? All right. I'll I'll stop there. All right, let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you. We thank you for Mount Zion, the city of our living God, and the reminder today that we are citizens of this city. This is where we have come and where we will continue to dwell and reside in your presence. And I pray that you would give us that boldness, that joy, that confidence, that hope to keep running and to keep living, even as we sort of figure out our our lives here on earth, Lord. Sometimes it is difficult to stay focused and and, and to kind of fix our eyes on on Jesus, the mediator of our covenant. But, Lord, we believe that your spirit can help us and lead us, and so we, we do ask for that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.